way back to our seats, and if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you don't, you can read along on the screen with us, or pull it up on your Bible app, whatever you prefer. So we continue to go through the book of Ephesians, because we're a church that really this year is leaning in to becoming more fluent in the gospel. We're going to really be doing that forever, but Ephesians, if any book really connects the the way the gospel manifests itself in the life of the church, this book really aims at tackling that issue. And so we've kind of framed it as, as looking at the gospel in view of the many isms that we find around us, like legalism, moralism, sentimentalism, cynicism, and a lot of other things that are replacements for the truth of the gospel. And this morning, our, our text is going to touch on one of the subjects that just really makes us all feel super comfortable to talk about, even more comfortable than money, and that is racism. Right, so everybody just kind of tense up a little bit, right? Because we, we are a church, and we'll, you'll see it from the start when we dive in here, that we don't, all, we don't all maybe have to land in terms of policies and actions in the same place, but we're going to talk about this stuff. You know, so many churches, what they do is they're like, well, you know, we, we kind of have our church stuff, and then you have your life stuff. And actually, I think that's a real, real reason why the church has such an ineffective witness in the world. It's because we sort of say, well, there's life, and there's church, and let's keep these separated so we can still be friends. But if we can't still love one another in light of even the differences that we might have and the specific applications of issues, then that shows us we are very weak when it comes on the unity that we have in Christ. And so we're going to go there imperfectly this morning, looking to a perfect Savior. We're going to do so uh, not because I said, why don't we do that this week? Because we're going through the book of Ephesians. And you'll see why as we read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So in making peace, so making peace that is, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, may you add your blessing to the word. Jesus, may you be exalted in our time together. 
And Holy Spirit, might you enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might not only receive the truth in our heads, but into the core of who we are. We pray today, God, that what is not true would fall to the ground, but what is true by your Spirit would have a changing effect in our lives to the glory of your name and the kingdom of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this year, our, this week, that is, kind of our social media probably blew up, right? And it blew up because Nike decided to feel the tension. Here we go. You already tense when I say Nike, right? Because Nike decided to endorse Colin Kaepernick, right? The, the football player who is either, depending on your view, famous or infamous for deciding uh, to kneel during the national anthem to bring awareness to systematic injustices, or at least those he uh, feels are that way, brought her to the nation. And everybody's going crazy, right? And maybe if you don't agree with me, we, maybe i am just got a bunch of crazy people I'm friends with on social media. And so we, what we find here is there's a lot more heat than light. What I mean by that is, is, is what you don't see happening, regardless of your opinion on it, and we're not, I'm not going to tell you what, how you need to fall on that, is what we see is a lot more people, instead of engaging the substance of arguments, just making fun of each other. Instead of saying, hey, let's, let's actually talk about the issues here, it's no, let's make memes that mock each other. Let's create sort of these red herring arguments that compare whether this person's courageous or this person's more courageous. And let's just belittle one another, blame one another. I don't know, do, do we think that that actually helps bring peace? Sarcasm, cynicism. In the middle of this, we as the church have an opportunity to challenge the division in our world with a gospel intentionality that demands a gospel explanation. But sadly, the church's record is not super great when it comes to these issues. Again, we, we separate, as it were, the sacred and the secular. And so we, we sort of think, well, the church, we kind of ignore that stuff. It's super divisive. And then we go out into our lives and we live in such a way that really communicates to the world is that the gospel really has nothing to say to real life. The gospel really has no power when it comes to the deepest divides in our world. And so sadly, many of the people respond to issues like this without a countercultural fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. But sadly, it's often people who claim the name of Christ, whose lives are filled with mocking words, mocking memes, eye-rolling attitudes, and straw man arguments that resemble nothing of the fruit of the spirit. But the good news is, and we see this in our text, is that God is always up to something bigger. The good news is, is that we don't have to be stuck in the little stories that our world wants to force us into, into the either-or categories. But God just is blowing up with these gospel bombs in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that his mission is about having a church that displays a supernatural, spirit-filled unity in a world of division his mission. We'll, we'll see this later in Ephesians 3. Really a big part of the unfolding mystery of the gospel is that God was going to take both Jew and Gentile and make them one. Give them an identity that superseded all of their national and cultural unities. 
to produce a church who's full of Christians whose national identity is taken far less seriously than their kingdom identity. We'll say that again. To create a church of Christians whose national identity is not unimportant to them, but is taken far less serious than the identity they share together in Christ. It's God's mission for us to not merely give lip service to the unity that Jesus brings, but to give our lives experiencing and displaying the unity that Jesus wants us to show to this world. And if it's been ever been needed, and it's been needed a lot of times, maybe always, it's needed now. So as a church, we must display a reconciliation of the gospel that demands a gospel explanation. Say it again, that's what we're leaning into. We must live into the reconciliation of the gospel that demands an explanation of the gospel. So how do we do that? Well, don't think I'm going to solve all the world's problems in 30 minutes this morning. But we're going to try to pull some things here out of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 that I think show us how Paul addressed this issue in view of the gospel and gives us at least a starting point to have some healthy conversation from. The first thing that we need to do is we need to tell the truth about the pain of sin and suffering. We've got to tell the truth. Paul tells the truth about the division that exists. The division between Jew and Gentile. He's, he's doing this in verse 11. Remember that you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. What these parentheses mean here is this was a derogatory term that the Jews would call the Gentiles. So whatever racial slurs that there exist today, a culture having to deal with racial slurs and name calling is nothing new. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. They were considered as less than and the Gentiles in the face of the Jews also looked down upon them. There was a hostility. There was a division. It was big. It was historical. It had taken place in wars where one group of people through their national identity killed and enslaved another group of people due to their national identity. And vice versa. The other group then did the same thing to that group. And Paul talks about this. One writer said, The divide here was bigger than any divide we face today among Anglo, African, Latino, Asian, or Native Americans. That's not to belittle the bigness of the divides that we face today, but it's to kind of give us hope that the gospel is not foreign to this subject. Actually, if you look at how Paul addresses even big doctrines like justification, it's usually in view of the divide of Jew and Gentile in the church. He's usually saying, hey guys, let's remember we're all equal in sin and we're all equal in Christ. But he also talks about the division ultimately that the Gentiles had with God. And so he lays out five sort of descriptors here that we could just spend weeks and months going into just kind of kind of read them. They were at that time separated from Christ. So the Gentiles weren't within the flow of salvation history that, that led to Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They weren't a part of the kingdom of God as it was unfolding in the world through the Jewish nation. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They, they weren't yet included in the promises to Abraham and to David. Apart from 
God then. For salvation in His people, they had no hope and were without God in the world. We could say a lot more things about these and give a lot more details. But what is clear here is Paul is telling the truth. He is using clear and strong language. And even later we see he uses words like alienation. We see he uses words like hostility. So what do we need to know about that? Paul is not being divisive by bringing this subject up. All right? Let's get it clear. Paul talks about the ethnic problems a lot in his letters. And so anybody who wants to say, you're divisive because you want to talk about that, then just realize your finger's pointed at the Apostle Paul. He is not being divisive by telling the truth about the history that these people have endured and lived together. Paul isn't worried about being called a liberal by his old Pharisee friends because he talks about these issues. Paul is not saying this is a distraction from the gospel to talk about these issues. Paul himself will say, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is not colorblind. Paul speaks very real, very clearly about the ethnic distinctions that play a big factor in the life that God's people are called to have together. And also, Paul does not merely treat them as individuals, but he treats them corporately. Certainly we could speak of Rahab. Certainly we could speak of many other Gentiles in the history of God's salvation that did get in on all this. But Paul is willing to say, this is an issue for these two groups of people. And nobody can raise their hand and say, well, don't lump me in with them. Paul is saying, this is the reality. This is the truth. Unity is not playing pretend. Telling the truth, however hard it is. In South, in South America, since they faced a, a lot of issues related to this type of reconciliation, they came up as apartheid ended, and apartheid was basically their, their system, their actually more intense system of Jim Crow as it existed in America and in the American South. As they came out of that and they were seeking to bring reconciliation to the country, one thing that they did, and historians debate the effectiveness or not, but I think it gets to Paul's point here, is they developed what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the first part of this was just getting all of the perpetrators of the crime to honestly say, this is what we did. And for those who had confessed these crimes, the other, the other side that had been put in power would in many cases grant amnesty to them. All they wanted was for them to make a clear and public confession. This is what really happened. And in, a, and in a, a recent movie called The Forgiven, it's not that great, but anyway, it tells, tells the story of this. Forrest Whitaker, you know who he is, pretty good actor, of, of him playing the role of Desmond Tutu and him going to one of the greatest and most notorious enforcers of the injustices of apartheid in prison and just trying to lead this man into giving a clear confession of what happened. And it unfolds the details, and finally, at great cost, this supreme racist, it doesn't show, it doesn't show any sort of glorified rehabilitation, decides to record on tape his participations in some of the greatest atrocities that were committed against people. And as soon as he turns in that tape, all the other prisoners come and kill him. 
because he decided to go public with a truth that was inconvenient for everyone. Some of us think that it's weakness to tell the truth. The world tells us if you tell the truth, people will take advantage of you. If you tell the truth, others will have the upper hand. If you tell the truth, then people will distort it. But the reality is that it takes great courage to be honest about our sins and the sins that we see all around us. And not only does it take great courage, it also takes great cost. For some of you in this room, for you to watch an NFL football game at this point, sadly, would mean you'll be ridiculed and outcast by your family. That's weird, but it kind of we're at that point in this country. You got to decide whether that's a cost you want to embrace or not. But I'm not saying what's right or what's wrong in that. I'm just saying this is the reality that we live in. But we have to tell the truth. And you may ask, whose truth? Isn't that the question that's begged? And this is where we want to go to God's word. What is God's truth? Because it's not just about the division that people face with one another. Ultimately, Paul here is talking about this division that is between God and man. The division that all think, all people face. Jew, Gentile, Anglo, African, Latino. And this is also a division I think at many times we're unwilling to tell the truth about. We live in a world that does not have a lot of toleration for people saying there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. It will take courage. Sometimes it will be at a cost. But Paul, through the Spirit here, leads us to tell the truth. To tell the truth about prejudices in our culture, to tell the truth about the division that people face before God. Paul would be questioned today by many in the church as being a cultural Marxist who has unwillingly fallen prey to philosophies and fads of the world that are a distraction for the gospel. But he proclaims here the truth that the gospel radically, radically calls us to tell the truth about the division of people. But he doesn't just leave us there. So the first step is we must tell the truth. And by the way, that goes, that goes in all our relationships. All of our relationships, right? Your roommates, your spouses, your children. The first step to reconciliation is not to say, hey, I don't want to talk about that anymore. The first step is to say, let's tell the truth. But thank God we're not left there. So not only must we tell the truth about our sin and suffering, but we must believe the truth about the peace of Jesus. So if the first step, telling the truth, is super complex and there's a lot of painful moving parts, well, this truth is no, no less easier, is that we actually have enough faith to believe in the power of the peace that Jesus brings. It's a dark and complex world in a lot of ways and a lot of division, and it's easy for us as Christians to say, what's the point? This will never really get any better. Nothing will ever really change. But we see here in verse 13 that just as in verses 1 through 10 where we talk about how we were dead in sins, but the grace of God. Here we say, though we were separated ethnically and culturally apart from the gospel, but now in Jesus Christ. 
So we see another, you can giggle if you want to, another one of these powerful buts. Right? But now, in Christ Jesus, there's a shift in the narrative. All right? So we can either let ourselves be captured by the story of this world, or we can let ourselves be caught up into the story of Christ, the story of the gospel. Notice here, again, we write books on each of these phrases. You who were once far off have been brought near. This is quoting the prophet Isaiah, that God has taken all of us in this room. Have you Just imagine this. This blows my mind. This was not written in Chattanooga. Jesus didn't live in Tennessee. Jesus lived over in the Middle East in Israel. Paul writes this in a, from a prison in Asia Minor. And here we are in Cleveland, Tennessee, recipients of the work of Christ and the grace of God and the word of God. Is that not amazing? I mean, this is amazing. We're the Gentiles. I don't know if any of you in here are, are, are Jewish culturally, but I don't think you are. We're the Gentiles. And God, through Jesus, has brought us who were far near. And how did he do this? By the blood of Christ. Again, in our culture, they tell us either you're peace-loving people or you're people who preach about the blood of Jesus and the cross. And the Bible won't let us choose. What actually the gospel tells us is we have peace with God and with one another through the blood of the cross. We get, we get sanitized to this, but this is really a violent image, isn't it? And we should, not only are we Gentiles in Cleveland, Tennessee, enjoying the gospel that sprang out of the Middle East, but we, we celebrate the death of Jesus on a bloody cross. After this sermon, we're going to come to these tables and we're going to drink a cup that represents the blood of Jesus. That's, that should be a little strange if you think about it. But what the blood of Jesus represents is that he bore the penalty that we deserve for our sin. The gospel does not say, let's not take sin seriously. Humans will be humans. Let's just forget about the past. You know, blah, let's not talk about that. Let's just move on. No, this is, how, this is what the cross says. Your sin and your suffering, both culturally, systemically, and personally, was so bad, was so horrible, was so evil, that the eternal Son of God had to become man and live in your life a perfect walk. Your sin was so horrible, so bad, so evil that it took his death on the cross to pay for those sins. Our sin was so horrible, so bad, so evil that it took his rising from the dead to bring victory over all the evil and powers of the world. A people of the gospel are not a people who paper over sin, who paper over pain. We're a people who can tell the truth because we know however bad the truth is, greater the reality of the cross of Christ. He has brought us back to God. And through the union and reconciliation that we share with God in verses 14 through 18, we just see this list 
of how he's transformed the relationships that we have with one another. Verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace. Where is the hope of peace? It's not in a plan. It's not in a program. It's not in a policy. Ultimately, it's in a person. It's in Jesus. What if we of all our ethnicities and cultural backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses, because oftentimes this is just as strong when it goes from poor to middle class to rich as it is across ethnicities. What if we all decided to submit to our Middle Eastern Lord, Jesus Christ? Risen from the dead as the true Adam. Also notice verse 14 says, He has made us both one. What if that's where we started it, where it comes to the people of God? Is we are one. We don't, we're not really going out to accomplish oneness. For those who are in Christ, we are one. So why don't we be who we are? Notice again in verse 14, he broke down the wall of hostility. Most people believe this is not talking generally or metaphorically about there like a wall between God and man and a wall between Jew and Gentile. But actually in the temple of that period, there was a literal wall that had a sign on it that said, Gentiles, you go any further and your death is on your own hands. Reminds me of some of the signs that used to be posted in some of the more rurals around here. Fill in the blank, don't be caught here when the sun goes down. That's real if y'all don't realize that. In these areas, there were signs put up in certain communities that said, uh, the bad word for African Americans, don't let your butt be caught here when the sun goes down. That's, that's what was in the temple. The Jews had erected that. Gentiles, you stay in the outer court, you go in here, something happens to you, it's your fault. Paul says here the gospel knocks that wall down. That everyone has equal access to the Father. Also in verse 15, how did Jesus do that? Well, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What is that talking about? Is that is he eliminated all ceremonial and all cultural aspects of the law that force someone to change their culture to be accepted as a full member of the people of God. It wasn't that those cultural identifiers and ceremonial laws in the Old Covenant were bad. It's just that they were temporary and they were pointing forward to a unity that we would have in Christ that would transcend all cultural distinctions. So what would it, what would it be like if Christians today actually said, you can be fully yourself in your culture and I can be fully who I am in my culture, and yet we can still see one another as equals and one. Also says he made one man in the place of two. This is important. This is huge. This would have rocked the Jewish people's world. He is not saying that the Gentiles have now become a part of the Jews. He's saying now we're a whole one new people. He's saying there is one new man, one new humanity that is not united in any cultural or national signification, but in Christ. Verse 15, he made peace. The end of verse 15, he made peace 
object of peace. In verse 16, how did he do it again? He reconciled us through the cross. Verse 17, he preached peace to those who were far and near. This is huge. The, the Jew and the Gentile both needed the peace of the gospel equally. In verse 18, he gave us all the same spirit with equal access to the Father. No one has a leg up in the kingdom of God. We're all in Christ. This is the power of the gospel. What if we believe that justice in the face of an honest confession of sin and suffering to its depth has been achieved for the forgiveness of the sinner and for the suffering of the sin against? I had a friend, uh, or I have a friend, who in the history of his marriage, he, uh, he committed adultery, had an affair, multiple affairs with his wife, and obviously a big division took place there, their relationship. And he, uh, he agreed to go to counseling, and in the course of this counseling, uh, he actually became converted to Christ. And uh, so as he was converted, he began to confess his sin. He began to share honestly, this is, this is what happened. This is what I did. Up to this point, he had kind of just sort of said, yeah, I generally had an affair. But it came out, there was more to it. There was more details. There was more pain. There was more problems. And she, she continued to press for that. She became very angry, very bitter. She wanted more. If any of you have ever been really hurt by somebody, I know I did this. Uh, not in this, not that situation. I don't think that. But uh, uh, not that it couldn't be. By the grace of God, is the only hope that I am around. But is is when you're really hurt. Sometimes you just want to you want to get every detail, right? And you feel like I'm going to make you pay, right? And you get you get in a, a bitter place. You get in a hard place. And so it came to the point to where. He had humbled himself to make an honest confession, point one, right? Tell the truth. But for her, it was not enough. And then more, and then more. And as it went on after weeks and months of him seeking to be honest, to confess, to share all that he had with a third-party accountability, making sure that it was happened, one day the counselor looked, looked at her and said, how much will be enough? When can he ever confess enough? When could he ever do enough? She was angry at the question. She was bitter at the question. She angrily just said, I don't know if there's any, anything he could do that will ever be enough. The counselor looked at her and said, you're right. There's not. how it is with our divisions with God it's how it is with our divisions to one another and it's certainly how it is in the divisions we have in our country when it comes to great ethnic there's not enough that can be done why? because guess our sin deserves worse than we think it does our sin deserves the eternal judgment of God 
And none of us in here can pay that off. Step one, we need to tell the truth about that. We need to call evil, evil. But step two, we need to be led where that counselor didn't lead her. And that is to this doctrine we see in this scripture of the peace that comes through the blood of Jesus. The $5 word for that is propitiation, which means that on the, de- in the, on the cross, in the death of Jesus, he satisfied the wrath of God to the very last drop that was deserved. None of us in here can pay for our sins. None of us in here can repay what other people deserve for how we've sinned against them. But praise God, Jesus has paid it all. He's paid it all. And that is our hope. The only hope of unity. The only hope of reconciliation in our marriages, in our homes, in our relationships, in our country, in our world. Is that Jesus has paid it all. Because when we believe that, we can tell the truth and not water it down. But then we can still have hope and we have a third party leading us to this reconciliation and that is Jesus himself and we need to follow him because many people most people I I would dare say this morning who spend all this week mocking others who might hold a different opinion than they do on certain issues would say well I'm doing that because I already agree with all that stuff and I'm just tired of people telling me I don't. I'm tired of being judged for something that somebody else did. What's the big deal? You're making it the big deal because you won't quit talking about it. But this is why we need Jesus to step in, the one mediator between God and man. And we need him because we think we're fine. So I want to ask you today, are you following the Jesus who sat down with a woman at the well in Samaria? For those of you in here would say, well, the demographics of my community don't justify the type of ratio and friendship. Do you realize that Jesus, the demographic of his community, said, don't talk to Samaritans. Do you realize Jesus could have went another route? And he said, I'm going to go out of my way to engage someone of a different ethnicity than me. I'm not going to step back and wait for them to come to me. I'm going to go and sit down with them, even though that would lead me to be shamed by many others. So who are you seeking out and sitting with? There's also the Jesus that can say, as he prays to the Father in the book of John, that I don't only pray for these, my Jewish brothers, but I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And I give my life for them. So I ask, where is your sympathy? Where are your prayers? Follow the Jesus who died at the hands of both Israel and Rome, Jew and Gentile. It's so crazy when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out is that there was supreme debate on who was it that actually killed Jesus? Was it the Jews or the Gentiles? And the answer is obviously it was both. But do we live in that where we're trying to blame others? Who's more responsible? And are we following the Jesus of Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10? Where we see this beautiful picture. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open up its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Can you pray the prayer of the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven? Can you pursue the vision that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer? May it be on earth as it is Do we tell the truth about the pain of sin and suffering? It's complex. It's messy. It requires listening more than telling. It, it requires real relationships with real flesh and blood people, not whatever you're reading on your news side of source. That you, that you actually get your stories about reality, not from CNN or from Fox, but from real people you sit down with in real life, that you ask them about their experience and you listen to them. And then do you have enough hope to do that because of the power of the gospel? But then the last thing here is not only do we tell the truth about the pain of sin, not only do we believe the truth about the power of the gospel, but we display the truth as the people of God. Jesus doesn't want us to leave this in our heads. He doesn't even want it to seep down into our hearts. He wants it to go from our head to our heart to our hands and out into the world. And this is what verses 19 through 22 give. Again, another few verses, volumes to be written upon. But notice, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What God is doing here is he is making this one new humanity, but he wants it to be displayed in this equal life together that people share in the church. The church is important. The church is where we're to display this type of cross-cultural, counter-cultural unity where everyone has full rights, not who came first, where all are full family, where there are no favorites. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. That it's the word of God that tells us who we are and tells us what story we're living in, not the word of the world. It's Jesus that holds all this building we know of as the church together. Not a building made of bricks, but a building that is his body, his people. Verse 22, and it's in 21 and 22, it's in Jesus the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the world and in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is where this point really comes to life. Is that God is at work to build this type of unified people into God that just like the temple in the Old Testament is where all of the world looks in and sees, wow, there's God's glory. Where all the world looks and sees, wow, that's what it looks like to love one another. That's what it looks like to come to serve and not be served. That's where it looks like to respond not with cynicism and sarcasm, but with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and selfishness. That's where it's like when I see people who count themselves as more insignificant than others. That's where I can look and I can see where people who listen before they self-protect. That's where I can look and I can see what it means for people 
who actually care about not only the facts, but also about the depth of how people feel. I've witnessed in a family before, and you may have, where all the siblings get mad at each other. Oh, maybe you don't have dysfunctional families like we can at times. And so they still love mama and daddy, though, right? But now instead of them all coming together to visit mom or dad, they, they start to schedule their separate visits. And they start to say, well, I want to make sure that I don't end up there at the same time that so-and-so is going to end up there. You know, mom and dad are still glad they're coming and visiting. But with the pleasure of the visit is the painful reminder of the division that robs the purpose, the point, and the glory of the family. What God's word is saying this morning is that God, our Father, is extremely overjoyed when he says sees his people unified in Christ above anything else. You know what would have been easier for Paul to do? It's just to have planted a Jewish church and planted a Gentile church. This is how even some, sadly, church planting models are today, right? Is, well, you know, it's just too hard to get people together from different cultures and backgrounds. And so if we want to win the most, let's separate them. You know, that, that, that doesn't look like that ever crossed anybody's mind in the Bible. This is hard work. You know what the first fight was in the Bible? We like to read Acts 2. Oh, everybody's all happy together. Well, just go to Acts 6. What's the first argument in the Bible? Is that the Jewish widows are being given special treatment over the Gentile widows. Is that intentional? No, it's just when you've lived so long in a system that gives priority to these certain women, it just kept happening, and they had to deal with it. Some will say deep in their hearts regarding church gatherings and life, this is reality. We also have to think about our everyday friendships. Our everyday friendships. Some people would say, well, it's not that we're not together. It's not that we don't have more diversity in this room. And if y'all don't like me saying this, I'll say it anyway. Look, this room is far too white. Not because we want it to be that way, but right, let's we want to re, we want to represent Revelation five here. And I don't think in anybody's hearts in here it's not because that we don't want that. But I think the question we have to ask is what are we willing to do like Jesus did so that we can move in the face of that? Sadly, for many in the church, it's, well, it's not that I don't think they're unequal. It's just that I want to sing the style of music I like. It's just that I, I, I feel like that type of people are too loud when they get together and party. That makes me uncomfortable. Just think about how that sounds when you say it out loud. There's a greater thing that's unifying us other than Christ. So what if we walked out of here with these questions this morning? Is your life pursuing an ever-increasing display of the reconciliation the gospel has brought in your relationships? 
Is there anything other than Christ that gives you your primary unity with other Christians or people in general? Do you think that such issues are a distraction to the gospel instead of one of the chief ways the Bible says we are to display the gospel? What would you change if you viewed other ethnicities and countries as family in Christ more than your national neighbors? Ask yourself, do you have more of a priority and passion for your Christian, black, Latino, Asian brothers or your non-Christian political partners? Lastly, if the truth of the oneness we share with Jesus with all ethnicities was explosively alive in your heart, what might look different in your life at this point? Father, we thank you for the gospel. Uh, we, uh, I just want to confess that I'm convicted. I want to ask you that I don't just talk about this more than I seek to live it by faith. And yet, God, we thank you that we are not saved by our pursuit of this. We're saved by the finished work of Christ. So as we come now to your table, God, would you remind us that it is finished. As we break the bread and pass it with one another, may we remember that the unity we have in you is not through our own efforts, but through your finished work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. This morning, as we do each week, we respond to God's word by coming to the Lord's table not as a meaningless act of religious ritual, not as an act that makes us more saved or more acceptable to God, but as a sign of the finished work of Christ. Uh, there's, there's something called white guilt. It's really not of the gospel. Jesus doesn't want us to respond in loving our neighbors out of guilt. He wants us to respond out of grace and love. So may we come to the table this morning, not with our heads hung in guilt, shame, and fear, but with our hearts ready to serve and love because Jesus has paid it off. You don't got to go out and pay it off. He's paid it off. You get to go out and love. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you now to the Lord's table. As we go, let us just ask ourselves these questions. We won't, we won't pause this morning. Where might we need to confess where we need to repent and believe? Where might we need to ask for healing and help? And where might we need to encourage one another?